1: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Wormtown Studios. How are you, Lance?
2: Doing very well today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. It's it's comfortable here in this studio, but in this interview coming up, Lance, we weren't in this black box.
2: We tried. We always like being nestled here in the Crawl Space studio in our black box, the safety confines Mm. of the uh, three and a half walls. And we planned on having Chloe and Lou in, and there's some uh, raucous behavior that goes on upstairs, especially on a Sunday, where it shakes the ceiling and deposits little bits of dust particles all over the place. So once a week, we got to clean up in here, uh, and we had to take this one. As you said, we had to call an audible, and we had to take this one down the street.
1: Wormtown coming through for us once again. And so what we have is a really interesting and in-depth conversation with Lou Barry, who is a private investigator, former law enforcement. He was a police chief. Guy is pure law enforcement.
2: I don't think he's ever had a job in his life that didn't have anything to do with law enforcement. Even in his years now, he's still contracted as a uh, licensed private investigator, and he's been working with Greg Overacker and with Bruce Maitland and
1: others on Brianna's disappearance. Yeah, he's great, and he really is uh, doing some fine work right now on Brandon Maitland's case behind the scenes. A lot of things that he can't talk about. So this is actually great that we have him on for the first time because we've been talking to him, we've been friendly with him for well over a year at this point. This is really one of the perks of what we do. If
2: you're into true crime and you're looking at cases and, and you are using your computer as your vehicle to find out facts, when you talk to someone like Lou and you hear the facts that aren't out in the public and you see the inner workings of an investigation that is really one of the true perks and we're we're really honored and humbled to be in the presence of somebody who will say oh you this 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 thing's been looked at and we're currently looking at this and we look at each other we say how can we possibly be involved with this and not know that and it's because of the way law enforcement works they just don't distribute information willy-nilly
1: right and there's also a lot of like rumors and theories out there in brianna maitland's case if you look online so this episode this conversation with lou is really kind of designed to clear some of that up some of that conjecture out there we have a whole segment where we're just trying to clear up What is a fact and what isn't a fact? What's speculation? So it's a great conversation and an important one if you follow the Brianna Maitland case.
2: I would even go so far to say it's a great one if you follow any of the missing person cases because you can see how even though there is rumor and speculation, someone like Lou does listen to that so that he has more information and it's not a waste of time for him. He does does go through it and sometimes there is something
1: there. Okay, so we hope you enjoy this episode with Lou and Chloe joins us as well. Thank you to both of them for making the trip out. So, follow us on Twitter at Crawlspace Pod. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Crawlspace Podcast. Thank you very much. The backup Crawl Space Studios here in Wormtown in parts unknown. I'm Tim here today with Lance and Chloe and a very special guest. How are you guys?
3: I'm great. How are you?
1: Doing very well. Uh,
2: yeah, we're we're still nestled though. I don't want to make anyone think that we're uncomfortable here. Our uh, our good friend and cameraman Joshua F. Leonard had a backup location for us oh, due goodness. to unforeseen circumstances. Good to have you here, Chloe.
3: Thank you. I feel really nestled in here.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You have to feel nestled. Yeah. And we have Lou Barry here, a very special guest, who uh, Lou is working on the Brianna Maitland case um, as a private investigator, and he is a former police chief and uh, sort of all-around great guy.
4: Thanks. Glad (laughs) to be here. Nestled as we are.
1: (laughs) I just want to say real quick, uh, we've
2: been hearing everyone's comments about getting another Brianna episode out there, so we wanted to make sure that we came back with something strong, and this is uh, about as strong as it gets at this point, having
4: having Lou with us.
1: Okay, so Lou, can we get a little bit of background on uh, what, what you have done uh, professionally in law enforcement?
4: Uh, sure. I um, started off down on the Cape uh, way back when and uh, worked with the Orleans Police Department for... 10, 11 years. Uh, started as a patrolman, and then sergeant, and detective. Um, was involved in, in you know quite a few cases down there, investigations and whatnot. Um, and then came up to um, the western part of the state and uh, as chief of police in the town of Granby for the next 24 years until I retired. Uh, I, I teach quite a bit at both colleges and at the police academies. And for the past few years, I've been doing private investigations also on the
2: side. You officially have uh, private investigators? License? That's correct. Massachusetts. Okay. we just wanna can I see it? Just kidding
3: it's <laughs> yeah. totally kidding It's our new protocol. <laughs>
1: you didn't vet him. <laughs> How did you get involved in Brianna's case?
4: Um, well, I went to college in Vermont, um and I have a lot of friends up there. So I uh, just um you know, now and then you see a story catches your eye and, and that Brianna's happened to way back when it happened. Um and then fast forward uh after i retired i started doing um a different type of investigation relative to uh, civil suits um for victims childhood victims of sexual assault uh, who wanted to sue their uh, assaulters um do a change in the statute of limitations they can now do that up until they, turn, they the victim turns age 53 so i did a few cases um like that and um basically had a, a little bit of downtime um I had a par- former partner who was involved heavily in a Molly Bish case, uh, so I worked with her a little bit on that, and then um, we decided to look for another case to work on, and Brianna's kind of came to the forefront. So basically we met with Mr. Maitland, Bruce Maitland, and uh, offered our services pro bono, and that's that's where it started. And what year was this? Um, let me see. That would have been in 2016 in the summer. That's when we first met, met Bruce.
2: Yeah. But you had known about Brianna's disappearance beforehand because of the work that you had done.
4: I, well, yeah, I like guess said I was aware of it when it first happened back in 2004, right. and then um, I kind of lost track of it, but it had a few months prior to that, started looking at it again, yeah.
2: What was the first interaction like with Bruce?
4: Uh, he was cautious, I, I think, understandably, not knowing who I was out of the blue that would contact him. And we met um, at a restaurant and um, felt very comfortable talking to him. He gave us some background information on it and kind of laid out what we were planning on doing. And um, basically, I think our relationship has developed there so that we're on very good terms with him.
1: What about the uh, the podcast so far? Our coverage of Brianna Maitland. We we know there has been some inaccuracies a, at times, and then we try to correct them and and do better. But how how has that gone? I guess in your opinion, and um,
4: is, is there any glaring inaccuracies that you want to address right up the front? I can't think of any off the top of my head that haven't already been addressed. There has been some, obviously, and I think you're well aware of that. And there's no point in rehashing. Um, or perpetuating <laughs> things. But uh, I think they're great in the sense that they get awareness out there. And, and cases are solved two ways, by forensic evidence or by information. And obviously, uh, in this case here, there probably will be no forensic evidence. But so information is going to solve the case. And information comes from people. And the more people that are aware, then um, the more chances are, the better chance are solving a case.
2: So the information that's being put out there, the communication and just the dialogue that's going out there by way of the podcast is better than having nothing out there, even though you might get some false leads, you might get some people who come forward who just want the attention. All that is sort of maybe collateral damage, for lack of a better term. I I, I suppose like what I'm saying is, is it better to get too much information as opposed to
4: having to like really work for the information? I don't think you never have too much information. It's frustrating sometimes because you're chasing ghosts. Uh, You're chasing stories that have been rehashed and and changed, and they morph into a different story, and uh, someone speculates on something, and the next thing you know, it's fact. And um, that's probably one of the most difficult parts of a cold case is sifting through, um, you know, what... What is accurate and what's exaggeration and what's uh, speculation and conjecture, but um again, we have fresh information coming in all the time, and it's because of the podcasts. it's because of the websites that's great, and you work with Vermont State Police on this? I've met with them a few times. I have a very good contact up there that the case officer uh, sergeant I'm in contact with. obviously, it's a one way street um police agencies don't share. For for obvious reasons, so I try to help them with what I've learned, and as I said, it's but we keep in we keep in touch. Yeah, great. Yep. Yeah.
2: And you and Chloe have uh, a relationship outside of the the podcast, right? You've you've accompanied Lou on some. Well, well, go ahead and sure. Yeah.
3: Um, last year, Lou and I went up to Burlington, Vermont, to interview some people. He was nice enough to invite me to come along, and that was really my first exposure to interviewing relevant. Parties in this case are parties that could be relevant, and it was like probably one of the best weekends ever. So cool.
1: (laughs) What what uh, what about it made it so cool?
3: I've been so fascinated with this case and so emotionally invested, I guess, and hopefully having justice found for Brianna and her family one day. So actually, I wasn't taking a dominant role in the interviews at all. I was really kind of observing and letting Lou do what he's professionally done for years but actually seeing that kind of detective work right before my eyes and there was one time where um, Greg Overacker met with us and I got to really observe them interview someone at the same time it's just really cool you can't replace that by watching a documentary or a movie
4: Chloe um, was a great help because I, I don't prefer not to interview females alone obviously for obvious reasons so um, I asked her if she'd come up there with me, and she readily agreed. And we met Greg up there, and the three of us uh, conducted a, uh, one or two interviews, and then she and I did another one. Uh, I think her eyes were opened a little bit to a different type of lifestyle and a second one. But the uh, um, it went well, and it was it was great to have her not only to be there, but offering kind of a different viewpoint, a different perspective than than mine. You know, she's got a good background in psychology and has dealt with some difficult um, issues and everything. So it was really very, very, very helpful to me. And this was all
2: in relation to Brianna's case.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think there were three people we spoke to and all of them, one way or the other, either came forward with leads, either directly to Lou or in the past, or had been associated with people that we were interested in.
2: That must have been a hell of a dynamic going in there with yourself, Greg Overacker, and Chloe. And I'm picturing like good cop, bad cop, and I'd the, sing like a canary. Oh my god! Yeah, it's like <laughs> if if this guy's not going to be nice to me, and I'll give the answers. This guy's going to be mean to me, or this this young lady is going to psychoanalyze me until I'm on the floor crying. So it's just <laughs> it's a it's a win 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 for you guys.
4: She actually came with me a second time uh, out to Greg Barrington, where we uh, interviewed met a woman uh, who um, had some close ties to the case. And um, uh, again, I think Greg met us out there too, didn't he? Uh, he did. And the three of us interviewed her uh, as well. So she's been a she's been a big help. And a lot of times, I'll I'll bounce things off of her. You know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Particularly as it comes to uh, the psychological aspect of. Of things. So.
3: And that really comes into play a lot. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> it really <great>. does. <laughs> what is your relationship with Greg, Greg Overack, or other private investigator uh, who's working on this case?
4: I met Greg, obviously, through Bruce, and he told me that, you know, Greg had been on the case for a number of years now. So I contacted Greg, and it was like, sure, uh, yeah, he was glad for the help. And he sent me, um, oh God, a, a case of files. Um, and I had an intern at the time through one of the classes I teach who came to the house and spent probably six hours scanning documents into the computer so we could return them to Greg. But you know, Greg was great. He shared everything he had, and um, we work together closely now. He's glad to have the help. I'm glad to have his uh, knowledge and expertise. You know, we're both four hours away in different directions, but we have managed to meet up in Vermont, and every time he comes through on his way to Boston, he'll We'll communicate, and so it's been. It's it's great working with him. We talk. I talked to him on the phone last night for about an hour. We probably talk twice a week sometimes. Great. about the case and keep each other posted. And, you know, we we work our separate angles, but we coordinate things and then share information, and uh, you know, works out pretty well.
3: I think that this case is really lucky to have both of you. Honestly, just I'm sure that you, Tim, and Lance have seen that not everyone gets along in other cases, and having... (laughs) What? What are you talking about? I don't know. I probably just saw that in a dream. But um, (laughs) I think Greg and Lou don't have a problem with ego. They collaborate together, and I feel like every case should have that.
2: When you said that you two with Greg went to... Oh, no, this was a separate visit with just you and Chloe, and you said that Chloe saw a side of life that she probably wasn't that familiar with. What was that?
4: A witness we were our potential witness, I guess, who interviewing that was telling us about how she made her income doing, uh, live online video broadcasts from her bedroom. It's kind of like what we do with podcasting, right? <laughs> yeah. She's <laughs> a kind of, YouTuber. Yeah. yeah. Kind of the same thing. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably as a Patreon.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's what uh, what Lou was getting at. I think
3: it was a little bit more on the down low, okay. Than that, okay. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. You could
2: for just for research purposes, <laughs> could you forward
1: the hyperlink to oh us? Oh my and gosh! Just so we can, you know. So, uh, so let's get into uh, fact versus speculation here, uh, based on uh, some some case news, some case information. I think this is really something good to uh, to run by you, if uh, if that's cool with you.
3: I think people that are in the Facebook groups have seen that. I think you're pretty good at catching a speculative thought as it progresses. And I mean, it's not like you're commenting on everything, but I will see that if sometimes people can get really off track based on things that they've heard, and you're really great at explaining, here's what's speculation, here's what's not. So why not do it here?
1: Okay, so the first one here we have, Brianna Maitland was told don't go to work when shopping with her mother the day she went missing. Is that true or is that speculation?
4: That's total speculation. We There's never that I'm aware of been any confirmation that she talked to anyone. Uh, I know the story goes, they were shopping and she all of a sudden had to leave. And, and then afterwards she was agitated, but and someone speculated, well, she saw someone and they warned her. and And then there's another story about exactly who warned her. And, and that now has turned into fact for some people that this individual warned her. And the fact of the matter is, that can be explained by other mean by other uh, reasons also. As far as Brianna goes, she smoked cigarettes at the time. She didn't smoke in front of her mother. She had taken the GED exam, got picked up by her mom. They went shopping. She was probably dying to have a cigarette. That's what her dad says, anyways. And as far as being agitated goes, well, she had to go to work. It was running late. She had to be to work at the Lantern. She had to go home. She had to change. She had a twenty mile ride to the Lantern. So. That could have explained their agitation just as easily as, as anything else. I mean, I've been to the shopping plaza there, and it was in St. Albans, which is nowhere connected to any of these people involved in this whole thing. So the chances of one of them being in this parking lot in St. Albans and her happening to see them just seems right. kind of far-fetched.
1: Right, so. so it would have had to have been someone who knew about this plan later that night who happened to randomly see Bree and her mom or – Somehow followed them from where they took where she took the GED, which is even more
4: unlikely. Yeah, and then a friend, this friend that supposedly warned her was later involved. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't add up at all. So I I don't I don't put any fact to that at all. I don't put any uh, truth to that.
3: And that that whole story came from one person in particular, right? It wasn't anything that was ever reported by by law enforcement by the family. It was just based on one
4: person's account.
2: Correct. So that wasn't reported by her mother.
4: Well, her mother said that she left and yep. that she was agitated. Yep. When she came back, she, when was she well, when they got, in the, she met her outside. I think they got in a car and she seemed she seemed agitated. But again, I've told that that wasn't uncommon for Brianna to be agitated with her under circumstances like that. Yeah. Like Raise your a,
3: hand if you were mean to your mom when you were seventeen as a girl.
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My and hands she, up. <laughs> you know, her mom was shopping. She wanted to go to work. You know,
2: so. Mm-hmm. What about the stories of Brianna owing people money?
4: I've heard that from some reliable sources um, that she may have, but how much and to whom is all speculation. And uh, there's no indication that a 17-year-old girl would owe enough money that would result in someone causing her harm. I mean, if someone owes you money and you collect, you're not going to collect it if you do something to them. So the only way that I could possibly see that come into play is if you know perhaps there was some idea of trafficking her or something along those lines. And again, that's pure speculation. I don't want to, you know, say that's a fact or anything else because it's it's just speculation.
3: And it's not unheard of for someone to resort to violence in response to a debt. But like you said, it's not the most practical way to go about it because you're not going to collect that money.
4: Well the only time you, you would do that is if you wanted to send a message to other people. And if that's the case then you it's a public thing you leave the body where people are going to know what happened that's how you scare people it's a statement to make a statement correct yeah and that's that's not the case here and i again i i can't see her owing enough money that anyone would go to that extreme to to collect how about this one uh true or false dna
1: was recovered at the crime scene that law enforcement Believe belongs to a perpetrator in the case.
4: I believe there was DNA recovered. As far as who it belongs to, again, a speculation. She was living out of her car basically for a while, and so she had people in her car doing, you know, whatever. And I know there was vomit in the car, but that's been explained as being belonging to an ex-boyfriend um, from some time earlier. So if, if there was DNA taken, it's great. However, even if they identify who it belongs to, it doesn't necessarily mean it was anywhere tied into her disappearance. In fact, by the looks of the scene, probably not, because I don't think anything happened in the car. So the presence of DNA in a vehicle, to me, would be kind of pointless, meaningless. You
3: know? And I'm glad you brought up the vomit, because that's something that's, pretty widely reported that Brianna vomited that night, she vomited in her car, or during the course of her abduction. Some people have even gone as far as to say that there's evidence that she was injected with a hot shot, which either caused her to vomit or rendered her unconscious and more easily abductable.
4: Speculation, again, is just
2: wouldn't you think that it would be stranger if there was no DNA in the car after seeing the car and realizing that she lived out of the car?
4: Well, you know, I think there's DNA in everybody's car. I mean, you, you get in a the vehicle, there's, there's uh, hair, there's right. uh, skin fault. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, how valuable the DNA in the way. I mean, the DNA is valuable if it's at the crime scene and you're trying to identify who's at the crime scene or if it's on the body. And it belongs to someone else. Well, we don't have a body, and realistically, the crime scene was contaminated immediately, almost, or soon thereafter. So DNA in this case, uh, short of finding maybe you know her clothing somewhere and having DNA on it, I don't see where DNA is going to be a big factor in this case at all.
3: I even think that was reported in the mainstream media that, like, the you know, new DNA evidence has been uncovered. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, perfect. They're going to solve this. But I just I don't know why they'd come out and say that.
1: Maybe just trying to shake things up a little bit. I don't know. It just
2: it feels like, uh, like you said, unless there's DNA on an article of clothing that would just clearly suggest something bad happened, it's just, what could you do with
1: the, any DNA you find in there anyway? Yeah, it's a problem. There's, there's so much, so probably a bunch of people's DNA in the yeah. car, skin, yeah. as, as we talked about, hairs. There's no way to prove that any, any DNA found in that car was it got there from the moment she was taken from the car.
4: Right. The only significance would be if it was... If they could identify it, it belonged to someone who was totally off the radar, never had any known connection to her and, you know, as developed as a viable new suspect or perhaps someone who had a prior record for that or somebody like uh, Israel Keys who had been mentioned at one point or something along those lines. But, and that, so that's just very, very unlikely, I think, in this particular case. Right, because if it's someone like Keyes, then...
2: That guy's a professional serial killer. He's not leaving the scene looking like that, and he's certainly not leaving DNA. So, right? right. So, well, yeah, but, probably. Probably not. not
4: where it appears that they've found the DNA. There's, there's a picture somewhere where they've taken swats of, of the car, you know, cut it out, which I assume was where the DNA was. Um, and I think it was mostly in the back seat. So uh, the fact that, that anything happened in the backseat that day is pretty unlikely to me.
3: Speaking of Israel Keys, uh, true or false, Israel Keyes
4: is ruled out of Brianna's disappearance. He was ruled out. I, I, I don't know by whom or how or why, but I, I read anyways that he has totally off the map as a suspect.
3: Yeah, I think I read that too. Maybe the FBI had ruled him out. I believe yeah. it was the FBI, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
4: True or
1: false, Brianna's ex-boyfriend drove past Brianna's abandoned car at 4 a.m. on his way home from Canada.
4: Partially true. Uh, He drove, he drove, he saw the car. He stopped the vehicle. Uh, It wasn't at four. It was earlier than that.
1: He stopped his vehicle. Yeah. Okay.
4: And um, apparently shut the lights off, shut the door, and then continued home. The reason he, that initial story came out is he, he was involved in some activity that he didn't want everyone to, the police particularly, to be aware of. And so he basically gave them the wrong time he was not in canada um which i should have been easy enough to check because they keep track of who comes across the border if in fact the border was open then i don't know what the status of the crossing was back then whether they manned it 24 7 or not but if they had then they would have record of him coming back and what time it was and everything but as far as he told me he was not in canada
1: so is that something that uh, the current law enforcement proved wrong, like to- like looked into, told him, look, you weren't there, and give us another example, or he just he told you separately?
4: I don't know what he's told law enforcement. I know he's told them different things at different times. They are aware of what he told me, and I believe he's been cleared as a suspect.
1: But he did
2: contaminate the crime scene unknowingly by... Being there, uh, he shut the door. So the door was open and the lights were on.
4: That's what he told us. Yeah, He shut the doors, shut the
2: lights off. And what time was that if it wasn't? About 2.30. At- 2.30. So that that takes like an hour and a half away from a potential uh, time frame that anything could have happened. If he said that he was originally there at 4 and she wasn't there. So now you back that up to 2.30.
4: 2.30. Yeah, but uh, I mean, car had come by at like 12.30 and she wasn't there. So we know it was a uh, fairly tight timeline anyways
3: so this person's been cleared but for the listener out there they're probably thinking this guy changed his story it's suspicious that he drove by the car and he touched it it's um the fact that he's an ex-boyfriend at all should make him a suspect what what do you have to say to that
4: well as far as him seeing a car it's the road he was on would have been on going back to where he lived so it's right on the road the Dutchburn house was virtually on the road um, he recognized the car he, he you know he stopped he if he was involved why would he have even interjected himself in the first place and admitted he saw the car it doesn't make any sense you just yeah you don't know anything
3: there's you know? a like at least an anecdote that people will use oh you know it's not uncommon for killers to inject themselves into the case so that I think that's maybe where some people would be coming from I don't agree with it but
4: yeah I suppose if you look at people like Bundy maybe right. yeah, but <laughs> Uh, This guy's no Bundy. I mean, he's... I don't believe that to be the case this time anyway. How much
2: do you know about him? Does he have... Did he have a criminal record beforehand? Was he in trouble a lot? And has he gotten into trouble
1: since?
4: Uh, Nothing major that I'm aware of.
3: My understanding is just maybe like driving offenses.
1: Are there any persons of interest, uh, at least by the public standards, that you believe should be disregarded at this time?
4: I wouldn't rule anybody out. I think some are more likely to be involved than others. It's usually a mistake to rule anyone out 100%. I think some of the stories that are going around are, could be ruled out. They just don't make any sense. You know, one of the things that Chloe and I were discussing on the way down here is um, very few people knew that she worked at the Lantern. She hadn't been there that long. And no one knew, including her, what time she was getting out of work because there's a window of a couple of hours with the dishwashers before they would leave. So for someone to say, "Okay, she's going to be by here at eleven 30 ain't going to happen. You'd have to be sitting there for, you know, potentially ten o'clock till midnight with the with the time frame. Even the note said that to to, to um, that she left for her roommate. She'd be home. She goes getting out sometime between ten and twelve, and she'd be home. So she didn't know. I've talked to the former owner. Of the place, he said, "That's right. The dishwashers, depending on how busy it was, it was a you never know how long they were going to be there." That kind of leads me to believe that no one was necessarily sitting by the Dutch Dutchburn House waiting for her to drive by. I don't, at least some of the suspects, I don't think would have the patience to do that—to wait and, and attack her there. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. So you're talking now maybe more of an opportunistic thing, which kind of leads away from that circle that has always been the main suspects.
0: Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: I mean, what if it was something where someone was waiting for her to leave her job and then they contacted the people and said she's leaving, she should be going by the Dutch burn house you know, in 20 minutes.
4: For one thing, there's no self-service up there. So contact, contact how. And now you're talking more people being involved in in tight groups or not. You get more than two people, one person involved in something, and eventually the truth comes out. That's been my experience anyways.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of people's theories are rooted in that, um, you know, they knew that she was getting off work and they were waiting to ambush her. But the important point of emphasis is no one, not even Brianna, knew when she was getting off work. So that I feel like rules out a lot of theories that have been circulated.
4: And even fewer people, well, not fewer people, but few people knew that she even worked there. Because she'd only been working there a few weeks. This is only her, um, I think, her second weekend. This is a great clue.
1: Who, who, who knew? Do we know who knew that she worked there?
4: No, for sure. I know a couple people that. Definitely were not involved, obviously, her family for yeah, one, yeah, her roommate, uh, her roommate. As far as other people, I know a number of them said they did not know she was working there, which would be uh consistent with the fact that she was on the outs with that group due to the fight a couple weeks earlier. As far as who actually knew, um, you know, I think you're probably probably a number of people on count on one hand, her ex boyfriend at the time, most likely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe a few others, you know.
3: Nathaniel Jackson?
4: Probably. Probably, yeah. Wow. So, uh, okay, so if the person didn't know
1: that when she was going to get out and there was no staged, uh, you know, attack waiting for her as she drove past the Dutchburn, why did her car and how? Did her car, I mean, you know, obviously speculation, but, you know, did she stop there and, and have a drink or something? Was there someone that she met with? I mean, why... How And how, if you're just driving alone alone and along past that road, how does your car end up like that?
4: It's hard to say, obviously. Again, it's all speculation. But her car had actually, according to her her dad, who saw the scene shortly thereafter, within a week anyways, her tire marks, you could see, started about 100 feet past the house in the field, backing up in a... In an arc, a slight arc.
1: It started on the street and went into the field.
4: Well, you could see it on the grass. So, yeah, obviously it must have started on the street. Okay. But, so, but she had passed the dustburne house, in other words. And then apparently the car was put in reverse and was backed up. There's a slight curve right where that happens. If you turn your wheels to make a curve and you stop and then you throw it in the reverse, you're going to go the opposite way. And that's exactly what looks like happened. Now, that's, again, speculation. My guess is somehow she was forced to stop either another vehicle, recognized that there was an issue, threw it in reverse, backed up, hit the gas, it hit the house. The car was hung up on the house. In fact, the first time I went up there, you could still see the scrape mark on the foundation of the the place before it was um, demolished
2: hung up in a sense where uh she she couldn't if she put it in drive she couldn't drive away.
4: Her right rear wheel would have been off the ground. Yeah, very likely. Yeah. You know, without having that vehicle there measuring it but she was she was definitely that bumper was up on the foundation, top of the foundation. So she was driving past and
1: ended up changing plans in a real hurry and sort of in a panic it seems like and seems like slammed on her gas and threw it in reverse and hit the house, so now the question is, what did she see to make her panic and sl- and slam on the gas in reverse? Right.
4: It's anybody's guess.
1: Something that scared her, though.
4: Something that, yeah.
1: Scared her
2: enough to put the car in reverse, because I was thinking, well, maybe she just... Forgot something at the at her at her at the Black Lantern? Maybe she forgot something and she was going to turn around, but you don't you don't back up like that and whip it around. You you would just do like a three point turn.
3: And it seemed like an escape rather than oh something's in the road, I need to stop or I need to help someone. It, like sounds like she was really trying to get away. Maybe that's speculation.
1: Turn around, yeah, go the other way.
4: And, I mean, she could have stopped. Uh, they, Brianna was, from what everyone says, a very helpful person, and she one time brought home a hitchhiker, to her house. She felt sorry for him, so she brought him home to have a nice meal. Um, so that's the type of trusting person she was. So, you know, someone maybe with the hood up, waves her down, she stops, and then all of a sudden realizes uh, this isn't a good thing. Wow. I don't know. But that again, speculation. I don't want to put any fact to that because that's yeah. just theory, that's all. Were
2: there any other tire marks in the grass that didn't match up with her car?
4: Well, there had been so many vehicles there you know, once they found out what was going on, the first you had this, uh, the traveler stop took pictures. State trooper was there. The tow truck operator came. Um, and then by the time when they realized that that was the crime scene, of course, they had these, I saw one picture. There must have been eight state police cars there and all sorts of vehicles. So, you know, i the scene was relatively contaminated relatively soon.
2: I have one more question about the crime. I guess you could, it is a crime scene.
4: Yeah, apparently, yeah.
2: Okay. That stretch of road, is it windy? Is it narrow? Is it straight? It's a major uh, route?
4: It's a major route to Montgomery, if if there is such a thing. Um, its I, I wouldn't say it's a major route, but it's well-traveled during the daytime. I mean, on the other hand, I sat there probably one day for about 20 minutes, and maybe two cars went by. So, you know, it's not like Route 91. Right. Um, but— Uh, it's still the the road you get from Montgomery if you're going to Swanton or or anywhere uh, west. That's the road you go on. The house is right on the road, literally feet from the road. So anything going on would be readily visible to anybody going by. Um, I don't know in March at 1130 at night that you'd say traffic was probably pretty, pretty light. That's why the theory of a serial killer just happening to be there and is kind of far fetched. I mean, if you're a serial killer, you don't stand on route and whatever road number it is on Montgomery at eleven thirty at night waiting for your victim. You could be there for a month. Pretty straight run. Uh, yeah, slight curve. Okay. Nothing, nothing major, but there is a curve there. In fact, I when I first um, started interview or uh, uh, getting interested in the case, I, I don't know if you. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the two brothers that lived there, the Dutchburn brothers. Um, it's mentioned in the story how cars in the wintertime would ne- not negotiate the curve and go off into the field, and they'd come bang on the door, and they'd go and pull them out of the mud or whatever in the snow with their tractors. So, um, you know, that indicates to me that it was maybe more of a curve than you th- You know, you don't think about how bad they are when you're driving them sometimes. But.
2: There was no snow up there at the time on,
4: in March? There was snow in the field, but it, was, it wasn't was deep okay. um, because the area right around the house was looked like bare grass, but you can see in the pictures— further out into the field that there's some type of snow cover.
3: Speaking of that area and the Dutch burn house, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the Dutch burn house meant to the community at the time of Brianna's abduction? Was it a place where people met up? Was it a place that had any evidence at all?
4: When I first heard, you know, farmhouse and an abandoned farmhouse, and everything, my, my first thought was uh, it was a place where the kids maybe went to party or something. Initially, when we started talking to our friends, we asked them that, and they were like, "No, it's you know, it's just a place." It was. We had plenty of places to party that were out, you know, gravel pits and in other places that, you know, had a lot more privacy than that. That was right on the road. It wasn't a significant. I've heard it referred to as the crack house. It wasn't a crack house. It was uh, an old farmhouse that was boarded up that sat right on the road. So um, there was no, you know, activity there. Everybody knew it as the Dutchburn place, and it was kind of this. It had this ominous feel to it, I think if you knew the history of it, but it wasn't certainly a place where kids would go to party because it was too obvious anybody coming by would see see them there right so,
1: cops could break it up right away yeah, and, immediately if, and as you mentioned, the dark past that the location has weren't the brothers were killed
4: there right oh uh, they weren't killed they were se- severely beaten ah that's uh, right I'm not sure they ever returned to the place after that, but they were um they were beaten up pretty badly was it a home invasion yes they had the the brothers um had a habit of carrying a lot of cash on them. And someone knew that apparently. And that's, that's what happened.
3: The perpetrators are actually caught because they the brothers were farmers and spent so much time in a barn that the perpetrator tried to use the money or try to spend the money that was stolen. And it smelled so strongly of barn that they knew it belonged to the Dutchburn brothers. No way. I wasn't
4: aware of that. I
3: read that in the New York Times article. Um, and that article actually ended with they stopped answering the door to help people. That failed to navigate that curve after that incident because they were really traumatized and they ended up going to um, assisted living. But the article ended with a young driver had spun off that curve and knocked on their door and they just ignored him until he left.
1: What has the investigation revealed about the likely profile, like behavior and traits of uh, the perpetrator or perpetrators?
4: I'm not sure anything. I mean, I I don't think, you know, that you can really draw any conclusions from this because there's just so many... The possibilities there. You know, she was a, leading an at-risk lifestyle at the time, exposed to some people that were not very nice. So certainly there's, you, you can look in that direction. You look in the direction of someone that just, you know, someone that we were not aware of, somebody totally off the radar, right? So I don't know. The, the, because there's no evidence at the scene uh, and there's no body, so you've got no method of... of um, Of death, if there is a death, um, no evidence like that. I don't think you can draw any conclusions at this point. There's just nothing there to draw them from, you know. Um, I mean, usually there's two places you're going to get evidence, and that's at the scene and at the body. And we don't have a body, and uh, as I said before, we assume that's where she was killed, uh, but not necessarily. She might have just abducted from there. In fact, she probably wasn't killed there. She probably just abducted there, so... Uh, there's just no, there's nothing. There's just no evidence.
2: So you're fairly confident that this was a
4: murder at this point, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. I, I don't think. I think any, any chance of her being alive, unfortunately, is is long, long past. I, I even if she had been trafficked, um, I think she would have, in 14 years, been able to come forward, and I can't see her not contacting family and friends. I mean, she just wasn't that type of kid, you know. Does this remind you of other investigations that you've worked on? Not really, because usually you have a body. I mean, uh, you know, we did, I was involved in another homicide in our town years and years and years ago where we made an arrest before we found the body. Um, But that was, you know, pretty unusual. As a result of the publicity of making the arrest without the body, we found the body. It was in a storage facility. So, um, you know, you don't, to have a case like this, where absolutely there's 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 no crime scene, there's no body, is pretty unusual. I think you know, I mean, even in uh, Morris case, Mara Murray's case, they they have a little bit more of a crime scene, anyways, um, than they do with in this case here. You,
2: know? you just said in Morris case, they have a little bit more of a crime scene than in this case. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I would have thought you would have said the opposite. Just with the way the car was found buried into the house.
4: Nah, because it's just, you know, that's all you have is the car, you know. I mean, there's just, maybe had it been investigated immediately, might have been a different situation, you know, as far as footprints, uh, some type of evidence at the scene or anything. But, you know, they're both obviously very mysterious cases, if you will. That's probably why they haven't been solved.
3: Earlier, you said something about patience that would be required. Since Brianna didn't even know what time she was getting off that night, it could have been a chance encounter. It could have been someone waiting outside of her work to know when she was leaving. Do you think that rules out some people if it was indeed someone waiting?
4: Um, Again, I I don't want to rule anything out completely, um, but I'm leaning now more towards a connection to the lantern Than a connection to that other group, just because so few people did know that she was working at the Lantern, that's all. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the other group wasn't involved, but I'm leaning now more towards a Lantern connection.
2: So more towards somebody who either worked with her or somebody who frequented as a customer?
4: I I doubt it was anyone who worked with her, um, but perhaps a customer or someone who lived in the, right near the area or something. That would be I
2: I I don't know the layout of the Black Lantern, but wouldn't that be difficult as a customer to, have, to develop a fixation with the dishwasher? Because typically dishwashers don't come out into the onto the floor. Did she bust tables though?
4: I don't know, uh, but I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule out the the possibility that a customer might have had contact with her.
3: It was reported that she would chat with people at the bar. I think that she. I don't think she was just always hid away in the kitchen.
4: Yeah, that's a good
2: point. I mean, I think we've all done restaurant jobs and dishwashing jobs, and you do go out and you collect, uh, you know, the the bus tubs from the from the bar, or you go out to get like a a drink or something, like a water
1: or a coke or something. Yeah, I was a bar back for a year or two or something like that, and you definitely have conversations with people at the bar. Yeah, yeah,
4: especially if there's men in the bar. She's a young, good-looking girl, um, so you know, would would not um, be surprising at all. Was a Black Lantern something that?
2: people who were in transit frequented a lot? Uh,
4: ski season I think. Okay. Yes. Um I don't think it was your it wasn't a bar where people would go and say, "Oh, I'm, you know, going to meet people at the bar," but I think it had a clientele that was, you know, somewhat regular and they'd stop in and have a drink or two and it wasn't a huge bar, I guess. It was for what the owner tells me it was a really small, you know, service type bar, but obviously they had drinks there, so
1: were, uh, like, receipts and the patrons who were there that night investigated and everything?
4: Uh, as far as I know, the state police have checked all of that. But my my guess is if it was someone involved, they weren't there that night. Because if they'd left right after her, someone would have noticed that. Right, so yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Might have been a customer that was not there that night.
2: You know? Right, a customer wouldn't even be there when she, when she leaves because she's leaving after everything's done, after everything's wrapped up you know the they would have they would have had that guy but or, not in this or, case though no i'm saying if if he was if he was in the restaurant waiting for her they're not letting him stay there past closing the well di-
1: she left before closing though
4: didn't she I don't know what time they closed. Uh, I don't know. All I know is she was a dishwasher, and when the dishes were done, she was done. I know the other employees were there because they asked her to stay. Apparently, they, they would stay and eat and have a drink, and, uh, and she told them no because she had a second job at a restaurant in, in St. Albans, breakfast restaurant. She had to be there for seven, uh, and she didn't show, obviously, for the restaurant. The owner of that restaurant thought that she, um, you know, Irresponsible teenager works one week and doesn't come the next, so they didn't really think much of it. The owner's wife saw her get into the car, saw her because they they had a separate living quarters, and she was standing in the doorway and she watched her walk from lantern to her car, yeah, and get in. So, okay, I mean, the other theory that's been I've heard is that someone was hiding in the backseat of her car, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because so we'll play that out. They hid in the backseat of the car and they jumped up and they surprised her at the Dutch burn house how did they leave the scene and how did they take her with them? It doesn't... I do to say had a car hidden there, but, they, you know, that's kind of... To hide the car and walk to the Lantern doesn't make... You know, not going to walk a mile. They don't... So, again, there would have to be a second person involved in another car and it doesn't... doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me.
3: Um, another piece of relevance um, with the Black Lantern in is that she had two paychecks on her passenger seat. A lot of people will say if she owed someone money, or if this was motivated by money at all, they would have taken the checks. True or false?
4: Yeah, that I, I've heard that also, and that's totally false. Checks are easy to trace. If I forge a check and cash it, there's a record of that. There's maybe video of that. The bank teller sees me do it. So the last thing anyone would want to do is connect themselves to a crime for a $30 paycheck. So it's you know totally irrelevant, I think, that the checks were there. Again, they they didn't amount to much. In fact, they'd never been cashed. So she, that, I think, was her first pay, because she'd only been there. They said they paid every two weeks, which would make sense. She'd been there two weeks. She got two paychecks when she went that night, and there they were in, in the car. So their presence, I think, is kind of just irrelevant in the But it certainly doesn't play into the fact that she may or may not owe so many money. Anybody with half a brain would know that the last thing you want to do is to connect yourself to the crime by forging a thirty dollar check. It was only thirty dollars. Yeah, it wasn't much. I think the, to- the total was like sixty dollars. Oh wow, gotcha. it was
2: it was minimal amount. Had you ever seen the vehicle?
4: And where where is the vehicle now? It's junked. Yeah, they, it was. They held on to it for quite a while, and then it was just Bruce. He just couldn't have it around anymore, so they. Got rid of it. I
3: think it was subject to a lot of gawkers. I think they had it parked in a way where people would come by and just check it out and. Not good.
4: Because well, every time he saw it, it would bring back a memory. I mean, I can't even imagine what he went through when they realized the car had been, she was missing and the car had been towed to Lutz's and uh, and his son, and he went with the bar to open that trunk to see if she was inside. I can't even imagine th- that seconds of, of not knowing and, and not knowing what you were going to see when you opened that trunk. So every time you saw that car, I'm sure it brought back memories.
3: That is a very like disturbing moment to even think about how much distress and desperation you must feel. And they they were they moved urgently and quickly. They got that crowbar and they opened up that trunk, probably outraged that it hadn't been done yet.
4: Half hoping she was there and half hoping she wasn't there. Right. Right. When was it officially uh,
2: declared a uh, part of the crime scene? The car, I mean.
4: As I understand it, the timeline was something like this. She, she got to work at 1120. The trooper came by the next day, saw it uh, threw the necklace and maybe some change or some other small items, and back into the car. Went to the Black uh, Lantern to see if he could find out who she was or where it was, and um, they were closed. So he called Lutz's garage to tow it, and they towed it sometime After 9.30, they didn't have an exact record of when it was told, but sometime after 9.30 in the morning, they went and told it. And it sat in the garage. That was on Saturday morning. Jillian came home Sunday night. Um, Brianna wasn't there, so she figured she was with her mother. Monday, she called her mother. Mother said she didn't know where they were, so they started calling friends of theirs. Tuesday, they got concerned. They called the state police, and I think on Thursday, they went to the barracks with her picture and a picture of the car, and then the trooper who had, had it towed saw the picture of the car. And said, I towed that car last Saturday, so it was oh, seven days, almost a week.
2: So they they knew it was Brianna. The state police, the trooper, knew that she worked at the Black Lantern because he went there because he did
4: not know it was Brianna. He knew she worked at the Lantern. Her name wasn't I mean oh must have been on the check yeah he yeah. must have known yeah the car was registered to Kelly I think
2: when the state trooper figured out that this was Brianna how is it not followed up on more aggressively when he knows or probably knows that she's 17 years old? Where why, why was there such a gap in time before figuring out how to contact the parents on this?
4: Well, they never did contact the parents. The parents yeah. brought the picture to them, basically. So he
2: never contacted
4: them. He the went day. on days off, is the explanation I got.
2: Is that is that typical for a, a police officer to... Just say, you know, that's out of sight, out of mind for me?
4: it depends on the officer. Yeah. It depends on the agency, I guess. Um, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna be critical because I wasn't there. How
2: big was the garage that they towed it to?
4: It's a one man shop. Was it in typically this, in uh... Montgomery. But they had a little compound there. I mean you could easily go by and not notice a car. Okay. It was in Montgomery Center, as opposed to Montgomery, which is Close by, but another little hamlet, I guess, a little village. She would have been going in the opposite direction of where the vehicle was towed to. So if they weren't looking for the vehicle, they wouldn't have seen it. Unless they went in the wrong direction, then they would normally go. Okay,
2: uh, was this a place that the police towed vehicles to a lot?
4: Up there, I it was the only game in town, from what I've seen. I, I don't know, you know, how many tar cars they actually towed. You got to understand that law enforcement presence up there, presence up there is minimal at best there is no local police state police uh they they had gotten away from having resident troopers in the towns so you're they're at the mercy of the trooper that was on patrol in that particular area and they cover a pretty big area when they needed assistance they'd call border patrol that was the closest agency that had manpower on so so we're not we're talking of a, a rural almost remote area with very little law enforcement presence
1: it'd be interesting to talk to that trooper So what do you think uh, should be the focus of the investigation at this point?
4: Well, I think any new leads that come in have to be followed up aggressively. Uh, Other than that, keep looking for new information. I mean, I think any information that we've had has been pretty well covered. I'd like to say think that Greg and I have pretty much gone over everything as best we can. I mean, you never know. Recontacting people sometimes helps because— People change their mind, change their stories, they find religion, They, they you know, a lot of things can happen where um, persistence sometimes pays off. And that's the advantage, I think, of a private investigator. Over the police is that we have the time that they don't have because they have such a volume um, and they have to react to this fresh stuff happening and the more time goes by, the less time they have to devote to cases, the older they get. And as a private investigator, you don't... You know, you, you just work your own case load, so.
3: In the pictures that the public has seen of Brianna's car, uh, lights are off, doors are closed. For the people that saw her car soon after it was left there, what was the condition it was left in?
4: The I think two people went by prior to 2.30, one of which put the time somewhere between, if I'm not mistaken, 11.30 and 12.30 or something along those lines, and said that the, uh, I'm not sure about the door's, But the the lights were on, or at least the hazard lights or blinker or light was on. And then someone else went by around 1.30 and basically said the same thing, that the lights were on or parking lights were on or some type of lights, but they didn't pay much attention to it. Again, you got to understand up there, it's not uncommon for someone to have an accident and go home because if you wait for the police, you could be waiting on a long, long time because they don't come by that much. So... It's not uncommon for someone who goes off the road, hits something car that's able to get another ride and go home and not even think to call the police and say, Hey, this is what happened, you know. It's just it's just a different way of life up there.
3: So lights were on and then the boyfriend comes at two thirty and you said he
4: closed the door. That's what he told us. Shut the door, shut the lights. So
3: were both doors open? Both doors open. So what does that say?
4: It could say she was trying to get out one side, the other person came in the other. Or it could say there's two people there. Could say anything, I guess.
3: Sure. Yeah, and the lights on, and the and there you said there was a necklace. Was that confirmed to be hers?
4: Yes, and it was. So that would indicate to me there was some type of a struggle, oh, but maybe not. Maybe she knocked it out. Right? If she got out of the car fast, maybe. But um, that indicates to me that there was some type of a struggle or something there at the scene.
1: And that was found on the driver's side by that door, or we're not sure.
4: I'm, I'm not sure. I know it, was, it wasn't specified as to where, but I, I want to say it was, but I, I'm just...
3: In the spec- photographs taken by the World Travelers, you can see a water bottle on the ground next to the driver's side, Okay, along with a bunch of other things. But that was the only thing that I could actually identify.
1: Okay. Uh, and and so James, the ex-boyfriend, he shut both doors or just one of the doors? I think he shut them both. Oh, okay. Wow. And what was the condition of the, uh,
2: the fuel in the car? How much fuel did it have? Do you know?
4: No clue. No clue.
2: The car wasn't running when James showed up to shut the lights off. And-
4: no, and as far as I know, they never found the keys. However, it's not uncommon for vehicles of that vintage to not need keys. Oh, yeah. The ignitions oh, would get sloppy. That. It's sloppy, and you could just turn the key.
1: I remember seeing that as a kid in some of those yeah.
4: old cars. We had a, cru- a cruiser like that. The, you didn't need a key for it. You just turn the, turn the whole ignition that would start.
2: But I, I assume that you would have... Like a keychain. There's nothing like that found. No.
3: So it's been speculated and reported that, I believe, even in a mainstream news article, that weapons and drug paraphernalia were found in the Dutch Burn House following Brianna's disappearance. Is that true?
4: No. Uh, Dutch Burn House, as far as I know, the only piece of plywood that was off the window was the one that she hit with the car. I think what has happened over the years is. The Dutch burn house being referred to as the farmhouse, which it was, an old farmhouse. And people are getting it confused with the house on River Road that was raided after the tip, which was also a farmhouse. And in that farmhouse, they found a gun and they found drugs and Ramon Ryans and he was charged and all that. And I so I think what happens is people say farmhouse and people that are not totally familiar with the case assume they're talking about... The Dutchburn farmhouse, when in fact they're talking about the River Road farmhouse. So, the Dutch burn house, there was no nothing inside of any value whatsoever. But it again, it's just being confused with the River Road house.
3: I'm confused. Wait, is was it River r-
4: r- res- Reservoir, Reservoir Road? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay.
3: I was making sure yeah. there wasn't another one. Was, no, okay. no,
4: I my my bad. It was uh, Reservoir Road, right?
3: All right, and that's and for people that don't know, that's the house that was occupied by Ramon Ryans, Nathaniel Jackson, Timothy. Powell and Stephanie Mechia and they were all arrested and Michelle
4: Lucheta and from time to time other people and they were all arrested at that at that point no no, I don't believe again this is a little vague and I've really gotten the real story I don't think anyone was arrested when they raided it but when they raided it they made observations and they based on that they got a search warrant and they came back and that's when Ramon was charged and that's one of the reasons why you know, he was. He wound up pleading guilty and getting 45 days credit for time served because he, he had left the state. They had to go get him. They brought him back. He was waiting. Uh, he was incarcerated. And he wound up pleading guilty for credit for time served, which was 45 days, which he had already served. So basically, he walked out the door and he left. And people were like, well, why, why was that such a light sentence? Well, part of it, I think, was because there was some questions on the search. You know, you, you, you go back to the original tip is there enough cause there to search the house or not legally? Because they were looking for Brianna. They were right? looking for Brianna, okay. and you know it was an anonymous tip. Anonymous tips are extremely hard in the courts to justify as being a lawful search w- without a warrant. On the other hand, obviously, when the young lady's life might be at stake, that's secondary thought. At that point, it was to get in there and see if she's there. While they were there, they made the observations. Well, if, if it was ultimately ruled to be an unlawful search the first time, then those observations would have been negated and, and the second drug charge would have been th- tossed out. So my guess is, and this is pure speculation on my part, that they worked a deal where you know they got a guilty plea out of it, yet he had a minimal sentence out of it, rather than take the chance on both sides of going to trial.
1: Right, it's not like he gave, He likely gave information on Brianna's whereabouts or something
4: like that. and got. Uh, I, you know. I don't know what the transaction yeah, involved. Yeah. I think in, they call
3: that, is it fruit from a poisonous tree? Fruit from
4: the poisonous tree, correct.
3: Yeah. Where if they find something and it's based from an unlawful search, everything's thrown out. So I understand why maybe they were being...
0: Yeah, a little yeah.
4: cautious because it, it, it certainly would have been subject of, of um, discussion uh, or of a uh, motion as to whether or not that original search for her was based on probable cause or not. When you're dealing with anonymous tips, it's very difficult. To- it
3: was received by Bruce Maitland. I remember yeah. he told us that when we first interviewed him.
4: Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, Bruce received the tip and he called the police up and he said, pretty much, if you guys aren't going to go there looking for her, I'm going to go there looking for her. So they grabbed whatever help they could and they went and hit the house.
3: They really couldn't have that.
4: No, that, that wouldn't have been pretty, probably. ¶¶